I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And this week, we've got a fun family picture for everybody. It is an Oz film, but you don't have to endure any songs. Uh, it's also that special variety of 1980s big-budget fantasy film that leans more than a little into what some of you might describe as dark fantasy. Uh, we are going to be talking about 1985's Return to Oz. People have been telling me for years that I needed to watch this movie. Uh, they, they'd figure out what like my weird taste was, and they were like, have you ever seen Return to Oz? That movie messed me up when I was a kid. You should watch it. And I never did until last night, and I am absolutely blown away. I am, I, in fact, I'm a little bit sad, truly, in, in like not just to uh, uh, joking around. I am a little bit sad that I did not actually see this as a child because I know this is this is precisely the kind of movie that if I'd seen it when I was seven or whatever, I would have been thinking about it for months. Uh, like it, it has just the right mix of of, uh, you know, bizarre original imagery and character types that are not just like, you know, the characters you'd find in any other fantasy thing is, is you know, it's truly original, uh, but uh, strange combinations of ideas that still nevertheless tap into something uh, very deep and archetypal. I think this is a wonderful, scary children's movie. 
I think it's great. I, I never watched it growing up either. And I think part of it was just because the 1939 adaptation of uh, The Wizard of Oz is just such a, a, a monolith and it's such an, you know, such an influential film, but also one that so many people held close to their hearts that when this film came out, there were plenty of people who were like, oh, we don't, we don't want that new Oz. We, we've got that old Oz. Uh, it comes on television all the time and or we have it on VHS. Why do we need to dip into this thing that, 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 that some are even saying is, uh, is a little frightening? But, but here's the thing. Yes, we've been hearing from people say, "Oh, this is you know, this is a weird film you need to watch. Oh, this is this is a scary one, or this messed me up as a child." I really don't think this one is any darker or scarier than than any of the other big '80s fantasy films like Labyrinth or The Neverending Story, stuff of that caliber. Oh yeah, I agree. In fact, I don't think it's actually even scarier than the '39 Wizard of Oz. Which, if you go back and watch the original Wizard of Oz. This movie gave me a new appreciation for how weird and how <laughs> scary the original is. I'm serious. Like if you, yeah. uh, you, you kind of accept it because it's part of the air we breathe. The Wizard of Oz is, you know, you grow up with that as just part of American culture. So it doesn't seem that strange. Uh, but yeah, it also has very unusual characters and imagery and uh, and there, there is real tense, frightening, magical peril in it. Do you remember how heart-stopping that scene is when you're a kid, and the, the witch turns the hourglass over and says Dorothy's going to die, and the uh, and the you know the monkey soldiers are everywhere, and the Tin Man's with the axe trying to chop down the door? Like it, the original one is scary. Yeah, I always thought that the forest was pretty terrifying. So yeah, there's plenty of plenty of weird and scary stuff in that that 39 adaptation as well. And it's funny, we were we were conversing before we went in here. You you noted that I had a couple of sort of jabs at the the 39 <laughs> yeah. Wizard of Oz, and so you asked me if I if I hated the the original Wizard of Oz film, and uh, and I said no, no. I, and, and truly, I I think it's it's kind of impossible to hate the 39 film. I mean, it's such, like I say, it's a cinematic monolith. It's, it's so influential. Like even if you're not crazy about it, it probably influenced some creators or some uh, works that, uh, that, that came in its wake, you know, like mm -hmm. more directly, if you didn't have the wizard of Oz from 1939, you wouldn't have the whiz. And of course you wouldn't have this film either. Uh, but it's, it's, it's tentacles run far and long uh, through, uh, through fiction and dream weaving that, that came to follow. But more to your point about, uh, I guess, how you might have uh, heard about this movie when you were a kid, if people were saying, oh, you know, it, do it doesn't live up to the original, it's not worth seeing or something. I mean, in a way, I think it's kind of silly to try to compare them because it's, I think it's called an unofficial sequel. It is clearly a sequel to The Wizard of Oz, like mm -hmm. the events follow directly from the first one, but it's also not, not like an official sanctioned one. And it came decades later. The original was what, 39 and this is 85. So what, like 46 years in between, it, it was a long time. And, and that makes a big difference in terms of tone and, uh, you know, the textures that are expected in a movie like this, like the, the original one has a kind of, uh, a kind of, uh, gilded grandeur. Of, of old Hollywood about it. Whereas this one feels much more, I mean, it feels like an 80s movie, but a lovely, scrappy, imaginative one. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it is, it is a world in which the Emerald City is literally in ruins. So you, there's probably a lot to say there about like the state of, um, of, uh, of, of the, the 80s mindset uh, compared to the late 30s mindset. I don't know, at least in terms of like cinematic portrayals. But, um, yeah, uh, it, it is impossible, though, 
to go into this and not think of the 39 film, sometimes unfairly. So I, was, I actually watched this with my, my whole family. We sat down and watched it. And my son, he really enjoyed this one. He, he enjoyed the, the old one, but he was bringing up some things. He's like, well, why is Dorothy younger now? And also, why didn't Toto <laughs> yeah. talk in the last film? This film clearly established that uh, animals that come to Oz can talk. Well, how come Toto never talked? Uh, that's some BS. Brilliant observation by your son. I did not notice this myself, but yeah. So the premise of this movie is that all the animals in Oz talk, uh, and this includes animals that are brought to Oz, such as one of the main characters in this movie, which is a, a, a chicken that's like a cool, gnarly grandma. And the chicken talks. It didn't talk when it was in Kansas, but it comes to Oz with Dorothy. Talks now. So yes, you are. It, your son is absolutely correct. Toto should have talked in the original. This is a major <laughs> oversight. Now speaking of the chicken, whose name is Belina, uh, I have to mention the other the other reason I really love Return to Oz is I think it has better companions. Because yes, we Whoa. encounter in this film we do see Tin Man again, Scarecrow, Cowardly Lion, uh, but Dorothy has basically all new companions uh, that she goes on the adventure with here, and it's and I'm going to list them here for it for us so we can get a taste of what's to come. We have yeah. Belina, the talking chicken, and this is wonderfully accomplished via live action chicken actors and an <laughs> incredible chicken puppet that is just light years ahead of what we saw in Thrilling Bloody Sword last week, <laughs> though I do love both chickens. They are both great robotic chickens, but this one is much more convincing as a chicken. Yes. Then we have TikTok, who is a rotund, wind-up, mustachioed soldier made out of like bronze or brass. I was thinking copper, but yeah, it's one of those. He's he's a metal wind-up war machine. Yeah, he's a he's a steampunk soldier, and he's fighting on behalf of the Emerald City and Dorothy. Oh, and then the next one we have we have the Gump, and the Gump is basically a junk. Uh, golem. Uh, it's like junk is put together, a moose's head on a couch with some ferns and, and whatever else they could, they, they're able to, to assemble together. And then it's given life. Uh, and you got to love the gump. They like shake some borax powder on it and that makes it come to life. Yep. Oh, and then we have Jack Pumpkinhead, who is kind of a superior Halloween themed scarecrow sort of guy. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, Jack Pumpkinhead is interesting because he has the scariest form of all of Dorothy's companions, but his nature is to be incredibly innocent and sweet. Mm -hmm. So that's the crew. That's the adventuring party for this film. But one has to wonder, okay, wait a minute, what more adventures are there to have in Oz? Because the last time Dorothy was in Oz, uh, didn't they defeat the Wicked Witch and then uh, and then everything was cool in Emerald City? Like, they had a big ceremony. It was basically to celebrate the fact that now everything's good and nothing bad ever is going to happen again. I was trying to think back to exactly how The Wizard of Oz ended. Did it end with the Scarecrow becoming king of the Emerald City? I don't remember if it did or not. So that's the premise of this movie is that at the end of the last one, the Scarecrow was king. That's a detail that I could see being in the original that I forgot about, but I didn't check to make sure. Uh, but either way, things are good in Oz. When when Dorothy leaves, remember, she's going to leave on the balloon, but then the uh, the the professor, the or not the professor, I think it's the guy 
the guy from the, like the, the carnival barker charlatan guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he's like, Oh, he floats away on the balloon. He doesn't know how to bring it back. And then she thinks she's stranded in Oz, but then she clicks her heels together with the Ruby slippers and says, there's no place like home. And then she wakes up back in her bed and you were there and you were there <laughs> and it was great. But basically the, the pitch here is that in the previous movie, uh, the previous adventure, anyway, uh, Dorothy greatly destabilized Oz. Uh, she ends up installing uh, her own ruler, the Scarecrow. And I get the impression the Scarecrow's rule of Oz lasts like maybe an afternoon before he is then conquered by an entity known as the Gnome King. And now it's time for Dorothy to come back to Oz and fix everything once more. The villains in this movie are superb just mm-hmm. excellent. Some of my new favorite movie villains of all time. Uh, Gene Marsh as Mombi and Nicole Williamson as the Gnome King. They, they should go in the Hall of Fame of, of uh, children's movie, fantasy movie villains. Yeah, they, they absolutely should. And, it's, and it, it makes sense because we, we often forget, again, just because how well known uh, the 39 Wizard of Oz film is. But Margaret Hamilton uh, is a terrific villain in that film, yeah. playing uh, Miss Gulch and, uh, and, of course, the Wicked Witch of, uh, of the East. I mean, it's just a great cackling performance that you don't even think of as a performance after a while. Like, that's, that is just the Wicked Witch on the screen there. Wait, is she the East or the West? I thought she was the West. Is she the West? Who, oh, we have a good... No, wait. The East is... The Eastern Witch is the one who had the house dropped on her. Is that correct? I think that is right. Yes, I was correct. Uh, Margaret Hamilton is the West. We never see the East. You just see her socks. Both of those witches, though, out of the picture. Though at one point, Mombi, who we'll get into here in a bit, is described as a witch. So I guess she's keeping the, uh, the witching tradition going. Yeah, I like how she's first described, I think, as a princess and then later as a witch. But uh, I guess we'll get into more detail later. M- Mombi is just wonderful. Um, well, I guess you already sort of gave the elevator pitch, right? It's like, so Dorothy came in, she did a, she did a, a foreign intervention. She installed a puppet ruler in the form of the scarecrow. <laughs> scarecrow has been deposed. Now Dorothy is back to Oz and it's up against the Gnome King. That's right. Let's go ahead and hear some trailer audio for Return to Oz. <laughs> This summer, Walt Disney Pictures presents a motion picture fantasy adventure beyond your fondest imagination. You'll be transported miraculously back to the enchanted land of Oz, that magical kingdom beloved by young and old for generations. It's just a yellow brick. No, Belina, you don't understand. This was the yellow brick road. You'll share with Dorothy Gale the shock of finding everything mysteriously changed. What's happened to everybody? And you'll delight with her discovery of four wonderful new friends who band together against a wicked queen and the dreaded Gnome King. This is the Oz you haven't seen before. And this is the Oz you'll want to visit again and again. From Walt Disney Pictures comes a whole new world of entertainment. Why don't we just fly back to Kansas? Return to Oz. All 
All right. Now, before we go any any uh, further here, I do want to mention where you can watch this. Well, you can watch it just about anywhere. It was a this was a big release. It may not have performed especially well at the box office, I understand, but uh, yeah, you can find it in multiple different forms these days. If you subscribe to Disney Plus, uh, at least in the United States, uh, you can watch it there. That's where we watched it. Yeah, I watched it on Disney Plus too. All right. Well, let's get into some of the people behind this. Uh, I'm going to start at the top, and that is with. Uh, director who also has a, a screenplay credit on this. It is Walter Murch, born 1943, highly influential Hollywood sound and film editor who uh, worked on such pictures as THX 1138, American Graffiti, The Godfather Part Two, Apocalypse Now, The English Patient, and I think uh, I think those are some of the ones where, where he he did sound, but he also was a film editor on such films as Apocalypse Now, Ghost, Romeo is Bleeding, The Godfather Part Three, and much more. the The Lucas connection is also interesting because when you look at Walter Murch's uh, directorial credits, there are only two titles there. There's Return to Oz, which, of course, is what we're discussing here today. This is his only film directing credit. And, and then he doesn't direct anything else, but he does pop up as a director on a 2011 episode of Star Wars The Clone Wars, uh, the animated series. And uh, I, was, I was immediately curious, okay, which, which episode was this? Because I've, I've seen them all with my son. And it is an episode titled The General, and it's a pretty great episode. It's one of the episodes in a multi-episode story arc concerning the uh, Republic's campaign on a planet called Umbara. So it's this shadowy kind of world. They're not fighting the droids of the Separatists. They're fighting another Separatist faction. And the clones are under the ruthless leadership of one General Pong Krell, uh, who is this four-armed uh, basilisk uh, uh, creature. But he's like a really just ruthless uh, general who is ready to just sacrifice as many clone lives as necessary to win the day. So it was. it's ultimately, I think, one of the... Uh, one of the best story arcs you see in that series. And so they brought in Walter Murch to direct this one episode. So I thought that was pretty cool. Well, for a mostly one and done uh, director's filmography, this is a strong entry. Uh, I uh, much respect to Walter Murch. I wish he had directed more movies. Yeah. Now the screenplay uh, credit, the, the main screenplay credit on this goes to Gil Dennis, who lived 1941 through 2015, writer and actor best known for his work on the screenplays for this, 1995's Without Evidence, and 2005's Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash biopic. As an actor, he played Man with Cigar in 1977's Eraserhead. <laughs> oh yeah, I think I read somewhere that he may have been a, a, a classmate of uh, David Lynch, which would make sense that if he showed up in a razor head. All right. But of course the screenplay is based on the work of L Frank Baum, uh, whose novels, I think in particular, this screenplay is based on two novels, Ozma of Oz and the land of Oz. Uh, Baum lived 1856 through 1919. Baum was an American author, best known for his novel, the wonderful wizard of Oz published in 1900, as well as its many sequels. Uh, and this is this was fascinating for me because I really didn't know much about the cinematic history of The Wizard of Oz pre-1939, but uh, even ahead of the 1939 film adaptation, this was already a highly successful property. It was a Broadway musical in 1902, 
the the 39 film though momentous wasn't even the first adaptation the first attempt was apparently in 1908 with the fairy log and radio plays followed by at least a good half dozen silent films adapting Mm. the world of oz Oh, man, I've got to see the silent films and what they do with, with TikTok and stuff. <laughs> yeah, they look – I didn't get a chance to really watch any of them, but they look interesting. I mean, we might have to come back to some of those in the future. Now, of course, following the 1939 classic, there's still plenty of other uh, dips into the world of Oz. Uh, there was an ultra-low-budget adaptation titled The Wonderful Land of Oz in 1969. There were a few different animated adaptations, including a 1982 Toho-produced Japanese adaptation. Uh, there's, there's really quite a lot of Oz-related media out there, including such works as the 1975 musical and subsequent film, a- film adaptation, The Wiz, uh, the book and Broadway musical, Wicked, and then there are all sorts of literary treatments, spinoffs, allusions, and more. Uh, like, I, I had to think back on it, because again, it, it, 39 Wizard of Oz especially is such a monolith that you don't even think about the references to it. But like even Stephen King includes more than a little Oz sprinkled throughout his Dark Tower series. And the, yeah, there, there honestly just seems no end in sight to our fascination with Oz. Baum wrote 17 Oz books during his lifetime, numerous other children's and adventures books as well. But we keep making Oz-related media and it seems like it's just going to keep going. I've never actually read any of the Oz books, but I'm I'm kind of tempted to check them out because, at least with the two movies, there's so much unexpected original texture to the fantasy world created here when compared to most fantasy. Because, you know, after, after you've consumed a decent amount of fantasy, you see a lot of recycled elements. There's sort of, you know, the standard tropes of high fantasy that show up again and again. But, but the Oz world is full of uh, bizarre, unfamiliar things and beings. Yeah. And I, one of the things that I'm always hit with when I, when I have looked at, you know, often just cover art and illustrations from these books is that I feel like there's this, there's certainly this familiar sense to it all due to the cultural impact of The Wizard of Oz, but also this weird sense that you get from popular fiction that is very much uh, centered in a particular past, you know, like I'm, I'm not the intended recipient of these tales and yeah. they're not, even though they're in English and, and they're, you know, they're American stories, I don't feel like I am uh, like, like I have all of the, um, uh, the the gear lined up in which to receive the message that is being sent to me through it. Like your operating system no longer supports this software. Yeah, like I've never lived on a, a farm in the middle of a prairie. Uh, how, how am I supposed to uh, to take some of this stuff? You know, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. 
Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. 
From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, let's get into the cast here. Let's, let's talk about Dorothy. Uh, this film's Dorothy was played by Feruza Balk, who was born in 1974, uh, still active, American actor who might might uh, be better known to some of you for her roles as an adult, but she started out very young, and this was her first motion picture. Uh, subsequent films included Valmont in 1989, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead in 1995. That's an allusion to a Warren Zevon song, by the way. Mm. And, of course, the big one is The Craft in 1996. Oh, man. Several years back, Rachel and I, around Halloween, decided to watch The Craft. And I don't know if I'd say it's a good movie, but that was a fun time. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen it, but, I, you know, I've, of course I'm familiar with it. I remember the trailers and all. But, but this was a big film, and after this, she was in a string of big films, including uh, the cursed 1996 adaptation of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, is that? Oh, yeah, this is the one. If you're asking, is that The Island of Dr. Moreau in which, yes, it is that yeah, one. okay. <laughs> it is the Marlon Brando one. Yes, yes, the one where he allegedly had to be fed his lines through an earpiece because he wouldn't learn them. Yeah, just a, uh, I mean, there are documentaries about, about this, just a... a ridiculous production that still is it has things going for it i mean it's 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 oddly um hypnotizing if you catch it on tv and all i don't think i've ever given it a dedicated viewing it just it was on a lot for a certain amount of time uh i guess back in the the late 90s and so you would catch bits of it and it's it's thoroughly weird and just thoroughly a mess okay sorry to interrupt uh, American History X in 1998 is another big one, almost famous in 2000. And she was also in Werner Herzog's Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans in 2009, mm. which also featured Nick Cage, Val Kilmer, again, he was in the uh, Dr. Moreau movie, Jennifer uh, Coolidge, Brad Dorif, and Michael Shannon. I've not seen Port of Call, New Orleans since it came out, but uh, but I've been meaning to revisit it because that one I remember being a, a jaw-dropping experience. Uh, another interesting fact, uh, Feruza Balk's father, Solomon Felthaus, was one of the founding members of the psychedelic band Kaleidoscope, and Balk herself is also a musician. You know, I feel like we tend to, if a, if a child performance in a movie is bad, we tend not to dwell on it as much as we might on a notably bad adult performance, because I don't know, you don't mm -hmm. want to be mean about a child actor, but I would say right. not just being nice, she's genuinely great in this, great great performance as Dorothy. Yeah, she has this great big-eyed engagement. Uh, she seem, always seems very much a part of the action going on. Sometimes with kid actors, this kind of just, you can kind of just at times just see a child standing on a set, you know? Mm -hmm. There's this less of a sense that they're connected to, to their surroundings and the scene and the characters, but she's totally in there. She helps make these scenes, which often feature no other human characters. It's all puppets and, and, and yeah. suits and so forth. I mean, they're humans inside the suits obviously but but no other visible human in the scene and she's able to be that human center for everything and also i would say that she has a confidence like she's a confident character uh it's a confident performance that maybe makes some of the otherwise scary elements a little less scary you know what i'm saying 
Yes, I so I agree with that. And at the same time, uh, she also Feruzabalk also has the natural energy of kind of a government created scanner child who <laughs> might make people's heads explode if she doesn't get her string cheese, you know. Which is, the, I think, the appropriate energy for a child who is able to uh, to journey through the mist to another dimension ruled by scary individuals, scary entities, and then move back again. Yeah, so really notably good kid performance. But uh, we've got to talk about Nicole Williamson. He, yes. he, he left me floored in this movie. Yeah, Nicole Williamson plays, it's a, du- it's a double role. Uh, he plays Dr. Worley, the uh, electricity-obsessed uh, physician, and uh, what's, is he a psychologist, or a, a, what, is, what are his credentials exactly? Well, it takes place in 1900, so I don't know if they had all the same categories. I guess he's a psychiatrist, a, mm-hmm. you know, a physico-psychiatrist. This, this movie, I will say, um, takes a firm stance against mental health. We can explain, <laughs> we can explain more about that when we get into the plot. Uh, but yes, he plays a kind of... Uh, uh, his psychiatrist character, I think, is supposed to be taken in a very negative way, though is not as explicitly evil as the Gnome King. But he's great in both roles. Right, yeah, because yeah, the, the alter ego in the Land of Oz is the Gnome King. That's spelled N-O-M-E, no G. But uh, yeah, uh, Williamson lived 1936 through 2011, and he's, I think he's always a treat, at least for the, the viewer. As discussed in our episode on the 1981 snake movie Venom, uh, Williamson had a reputation apparently for being difficult to work with, which, again, sometimes you don't know exactly what to make of the, those supposed reputations. Um, mm-hmm. Making movies is, is obviously complicated, and there are a lot of uh, personalities involved. So mm-hmm. I imagine there are some cases out there where uh, repu- these reputations are well-deserved. Other times, there maybe it's a little more complicated than mm-hmm. this person was difficult. But at any rate, however difficult he was or wasn't to work with, definitely a great actor. Uh, he played Merlin in the 1981 movie Excalibur, which is a really shiny very just glistening uh, King Arthur movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also was in the 1997 Spawn movie. He was in The Exorcist 3, and he played Sherlock Holmes in The 7% Solution. This is the one that was made by Nicholas Meyer, who, who did Time After Time. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, he was in tons of other stuff as well. But yeah, in, in this movie... I, the thing about the Gnome King is I guess the Gnome King is is largely a VO character, except for the very end of the film. And even then, he's under a lot of makeup, and I think there's still some voice distortion going on, but it's still a great role. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think he is hypnotizing. Uh, I just wish there were more movies where he plays a magical big bad of some kind. What what just occurred to me when you were talking about like uh, great but difficult actors, I was thinking, wouldn't it have been great if you could get a uh, a Blade sequel that was Wesley Snipes versus Nicole Williamson? Oh, yeah, yeah. He would have been good. Um have you seen Excalibur? Uh, no, I she plays Merlin. Oh, it, it it's a great performance. He gives a he gives a great Merlin. All right, but that's just our our main villain. But we also have a secondary villain, and that and is also a dual role. Uh, we have it's Mombi, the witch, the princess, but also her earthly counterpart is Nurse Wilson. This these characters are played by Jean Marsh. Jean Marsh is also just off the charts on this. So good. 
Yeah, born 1934, uh, awesome British actor who appeared in Alfred Hitchcock's excellent 1972 thriller, Frenzy. And many viewers, I think, will probably best remember her for her portrayal uh, of the evil witch queen, Bavmorda, in 1988's Willow. Uh, Joe, have you seen Willow? It's been, I haven't seen it since I was a kid, basically, so I don't really remember it except for little images here and there i remember uh does that val kilmer like hanging in a cage yes yeah val Val kilmer is all over the place in this one as well but yeah gene marsh plays this evil witch queen and it's just just a wonderful snarling and and cold role Uh, this movie has i think the the greatest witch versus witch battle uh ever ever committed on film uh right at the right at the end of the picture it's just a real like eye gouging spell uh, slinging kind of encounter uh highly recommend it Anyway, Marsh did a, a lot of TV during her career, and I, I believe she's retired now, but those TV credits include an, an award-winning role on the British drama series Upstairs, Downstairs. She was also on Doctor Who, an episode of Tales from the Dark Side, uh, The Saint, and even a 1959 episode of the original Twilight Zone, one called The Lonely. Uh, this is one I've, I've seen before. This is the one where a convict living alone on an asteroid, which just looks like the desert, uh, like the California desert or something. Um, he receives a female robot from his captors to help keep him company on the asteroid for some reason. And anyway, <laughs> Marsh plays the robot woman opposite Jack Warden. And Ted Knight is in that episode too, in an uncredited kind of background role. So something that's interesting about Marsh and Nicole Williamson in this uh, movie is that they both get to play these dual roles in which in the mundane world, in the world of Kansas, mm-hmm. they are are presented as villains, but in a very subtle way, uh, you know, sort of blending in with society and doing something that from Dorothy's perspective in the movie we see as wicked, but, uh, but you know, they're not chewing the scenery. They're not overt. In fact, they, they, their, their outward uh, appearance is is sort of friendly, or at least Nicole Williamson's is. Gene Marsh is kind of cold as the lady in the clinic. Um, mm. But then you get to flip the script and go to Oz, where the characters reappear once again, but as just like frothing, monstrous versions of their mundane world uh, characters. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, characters that just demand over-the-top performances. Uh, just use, use every muscle in your face. Go ahead and crank your eye intensity up to uh, uh, to, to 11 or 12. Uh, that's, that, that's the sort of villains that uh, populate the world of Oz. All right, now a few more performers of note in this. Um, Auntie M, Aunt M in this, is played by Piper Laurie, born 1932. Uh, I, I don't know about you, Joe, but I thought this was this was rather hilarious, given yes. <laughs> that she plays Carrie's mom, Margaret White, in 76's Carrie, both movies about special girls with special powers. Uh, and, uh, and this is the and, and Piper Laurie plays the moms sort of trying to understand these these uh, these young women. Well, no, I would say Aunt Em is a is a is a good caregiver. Like she's you know she she's trying to be loving and and uh, she does end up taking uh, Dorothy to a bad place, but she doesn't mean bad. She's trying to right. help. Um, and uh, her her benevolence in this movie is yes, I th- almost hilariously contrasted with the other main roles I can think of her in. <laughs> yeah, she's uh, aside from Carrie, she was also in 1961's The Hustler. She was in Twin Peaks and Children of a Lesser God. 
Sorry, another funny thing that Rachel and I always talk about whenever Piper Laurie comes up is the the just the absurdity of the machinations about the mill in Twin Peaks. Remember that's like one of her main motivations is fighting about the <laughs> mill. Oh no, no, I don't remember that. <laughs> All right, so those are some of, really, those are the main human characters. A lot of the other characters we're going to, or a lot of the other actors and individuals involved here, they're kind of a mix of actual, like, physical performers or or puppeteers or special effects manipulators. Uh, So, and and I'm not going to list all of them here, but some of them stand out because of other work that they did. I like that in the credits at the end of this movie, when the uh, when the non-human characters appear, they will be given multiple credits for multiple people playing the role. Like they put the often the puppeteer and the voice actor side by side. I think that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So one name that does stand out is the voice of Jack Pumpkinhead. It's Brian Henson, born nineteen sixty-three. This is, of course, the the son of the late Jim Henson producer, director, actor, and writer. He's, of course, been involved in tons of Henson projects over the decades. Uh, But I think his most treasured place in my cinematic memories is as the voice of Hoggle in 1986 uh, Labyrinth. Uh, He was also the voice of the dog on Jim Henson's Storyteller. Oh, okay. And I could be wrong, but I think he also did some some manipulation on Jack Pumpkinhead's head in this uh, film as well. I couldn't tell. Was Jack Pumpkinhead a puppet or was there like a really skinny actor inside a costume Ooh, that's a tough call right uh without really diving back into the credits because he is supposed to look like a thing that is essentially a magical puppet made out of parts uh, mm. but there may well have been a human actor in there at least for some of the scenes um, along with some sort of puppetry manipulation of the head mm-hmm. and also sometimes the chicken uh balena is inside the jack-o'-lantern head. Yes. So there's a lot going on here. Oh, now this one was fun. I wasn't prepared for this, but uh, I mentioned we have the gump here, which is this junk golem that has a like a stuffed moose's head. And uh, the individual that's accredited for uh, effects and manipulation on the gump's head is Stephen Norrington, born 1964, the man who would go on to direct 1999's Blade and did monster effects on 1992 Split Second. Wow. So yeah, we, he keeps coming up in the show and he's, he's going to keep coming up. The connections never stop. Yeah. Okay, now this next one is more of a, a physical performance and that is the lead wheeler. The wheelers are kind of the flying monkeys of this film, only instead of flying monkeys, instead of some sort of a simian creature with, with feathered wings, they are um, like half human, half old-timey bicycle people or they are a uh, like a tribe of post-apocalyptic maniacs who have taken up <laughs> um you know vehicular uh, uh, locomotion instead of walking uh they're they're really odd they're they're difficult to describe anyway there's a whole group of these wheelers and the lead wheeler is played by this actor by the name of Pons Mar and I'm, I'm glad we finally get to mention Pons Mar because he's a He's a Florida-born artist, effects artist, puppeteer, and a monster suit guy. He's one of he's he's just one of the creepy wheelers in this movie. But he is also memorable for playing the reptile man Sarod in 1987's Masters of the Universe and the character Fu in 
Books is The Golden Child. He also did some dino suit work, both on TV's Dinosaurs, the, the, the Henson-affected uh, 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 sitcom, but also the 1995 movie Theodore Rex, in which he plays a cool-talking T-Rex opposite Whoopi Goldberg. To clarify, Theodore Rex is a buddy cop movie, and the buddy <laughs> cops are Whoopi Goldberg and a dinosaur. Wow. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it. I just know the premise. And the, and apparently he's like a rad dinosaur. <laughs> he looks rad. He looks pretty rad. At any rate, oh man, Ponsmar is the lead wheeler. His performance in this is just cranked up to about a thousand. I was thinking it's kind of like, what if you took one of Bill Irwin's mime performances like he would do on Sesame Street and so forth? What if you had that level of intensity, but it was also deafeningly loud at the same time? Yes, yes, he he is manic. Oh, and Rob, I noticed something. I put this together about the wheelers only after I watched the movie, not while I was watching it. Okay, so throughout the movie, you've got these uh, characters who appear in Oz, but then there's some sort of counterpart in the in the mundane world back in Kansas. So of course, uh, Mombi is the is the nurse at the clinic. Um, uh, the Gnome King is the doctor at the clinic. But I think the wheelers are the sallow, uh, uh, moist-looking orderlies at the clinic who are, like, wheeling the gurneys around, and they look like they haven't slept in a month. Yeah, I believe you're right on that. Because I think, looking back on it now, I'm I'm not positive about this, but I think Pons Mar is also one of those orderlies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think he is. He has a very distinctive look uh, that, that shines through even when he's not made up like some sort of reptile man. Now, speaking of monster suits, oh, I, I have to mention this guy. Even though the Cowardly Lion is not much of a character in this, the Cowardly Lion is basically turned to stone and only becomes un, unfrozen at the very end of the film. But when he does move again, it's, it's this cool monster suit. And the, monster su- the man in the monster suit is John Alexander, who is a gorilla guy. Gotta love a good gorilla guy. Oh, he does gorillas quite often. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Alexander was a former circus performer, cabaret actor, and theater actor who first climbed into a gorilla costume on screen for 1984's Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan. Um, this one's the one that starred Christopher Lambert, of course. Uh, this, was his, uh, this was his follow-up performance uh, in Return to Oz, but he also played a gorilla on the TV show Jeeves and Wooster. Uh, he was in, he played a gorilla on Baby's Day Out, Fierce Creatures, 1998's Mighty Joe Young, 2011's Planet of the Apes, and he, along with a few others, I found this kind of interesting, are credited as quote-unquote mime artists in 1988's Gorillas in the Mist. Hmm. Uh, and the thing about Gorillas in the Mist is Gorillas in the Mist definitely has gorilla costumes. It has great gorilla costumes designed by the great Rick Baker, but the credits don't say, don't list humans as gorillas or, or say gorilla suit. They say these are mime artists, which I thought was interesting. Oh, Gorillas in the Mist is the one that has Sigourney Weaver playing Diane mm-hmm. Fossey. Yeah. Good movie. I guess it thought it was a little over, uh, like it was above Gorilla Suits for some reason. But hmm. at any rate, uh, John Alexander. Why would you be above Gorilla Suits? I don't know. They, like, maybe they just, they were like, it's, it would be, we shouldn't list people as gorillas. Or maybe they thought they would, they, they, they wanted to keep the suspension of disbelief alive, that these are real gorillas. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, John Alexander also did monster suit, creature suit work in Men in Black 1 and 2, The Country Bears, uh, Zathura, and Hellboy 2. 
Now, as we mentioned, the uh, the original companions from the first Wizard of Oz are only sort of in this movie. Well, Scarecrow is in it more. But I felt bad for the Tin Man at the end of this movie <laughs> because uh, Dorothy, when she's like, you know, saying goodbye. To, of course, she has she has a, a pretty extended scene with the Scarecrow. She has a real good hug on the Cowardly Lion. It's like, hey, we're old buddies. It's good to see you again. Mm-hmm. But then she just disses the Tin Man, basically. I don't think she ever even says anything to him. <laughs> yeah, he's barely in this as well but it is noteworthy that the tin man is played by deep roy born 1957 the kenyan british actor who at four foot four has been a go-to actor for creature performances and diminutive character performances for decades so uh, roy has popped up in star wars the dark crystal flash gordon graystroke the never-ending story the x-files planet of the apes in which he plays uh, gorilla kid that is what is he, he's credited as. Uh, he's in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He's been in, I think, various Star Trek uh, shows and much more. All right, and so just a few behind-the-scenes credits to, to go through real quick. Uh, Norman Reynolds was the production designer on this, born in 1934, British production designer who worked on the original Star Wars trilogy, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Exorcist Three, Alien Three, and more. The sets in this movie are tremendous. They are amazing, yeah. So I just just had to to call that out. Also, this film has some great claymation, some stop-motion animation using clay in it that that really, if you're a fan of of that uh, genre of effects, like this is definitely an 80s film to check out. Like when the rocks are delivering reports to the Gnome King before yeah. you ever see him, you just see the face in the stone uh, sort of scrunching up and getting worried about giving the Gnome King bad news. Yeah, yeah. It's tremendous. So I, I'm not even going to list all the like the Claymation team members that worked on this, but the team included such artists as Will Vinton, who lived 47 through 2018. Joanne Radmilovich, who you can find images of. I included an image for you here, Joe, uh, where you can see the artist uh, working on some of the the Gnome King's minions here. Bruce McKean, who lived 1951 through 1993. Uh, Oh, and this is an interesting one. Mark Gustafsson, who is co-director on the upcoming Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio movie. Hmm. Oh, and then there's also Craig Bartlett, uh, born 1956, who worked on Dinosaur Train, which was, uh, was, is, I'm not sure if it's still going, uh, but at any rate, is, was a long-running Jim Henson animated series that I believe also used puppetry to create the movements for the uh, animated dinosaurs. Hmm. And finally, the music. The music credit here goes to David Shire, born 1937, American composer who scored a ton of films over the years, including All the President's Men, Oh God, You Devil, Short Circuit, Monkey Shines, and David Fincher's Zodiac. Trying to remember the music in Zodiac, uh, but I I can't recall the orchestration. All I recall is the hurdy-gurdy man. Yeah, excellent use of the hurdy-gurdy man, but I, I too don't remember the score offhand. Likewise, I don't really remember the score from this movie, even though I watched it the other day. It's it's one of those scores that does its job, uh, yeah. does its job well, but you don't necessarily think back on it. It's just not that type of score. Yeah, I mean, a, a movie like this depends on the music being good, so it must have been good, but it, it, it didn't stand. I don't recall what it was. Yeah, and it's also not a musical, so uh, there's not a scene where Dorothy says something and then the TikTok is like, well, that sounds good, Dorothy, but could you sing a song about it so I can remember it? No, it doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't work like that. 
Oh, we are the wheelers. We wheel everywhere. <laughs> oh man, what I, I can't—I don't even like to think what sort of musical genre the wheelers would use. It would just have to be some sort of like screaming punk song or something. Yeah, some sort of screeching avant-garde industrial punk is what that would be. My guess. What would mom be saying? It'd be, I want all your heads. <laughs> oh, maybe it would be a different genre. It would certainly be a different voice depending on which head she chooses, right? Oh, that's a good point. And when it comes to the Gnome King, it would just, it would be hard rock because that's what he's made of. That's, that's good. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught— A history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again. 
was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I guess we've already teased the plot a good bit, but uh, I think this is one of those ones where we're not going to try to go scene by scene and, and describe the whole movie, uh, because this is this one, it's good to, to let some surprises remain, but maybe we should talk about some broad broad sections of the plot and some of our favorite details. Um, so do you want to start with life in Kansas? Let's do it. So the film seems to take place a little while after the events of the original Wizard of Oz. Dorothy Gale is back on the farm with Aunt Em and Uncle Henry. They are rebuilding the house because, of course, it was uh, it was you know carried away by the Kansas Cyclone in the previous movie. Uh, but Dorothy is you know, she's not just totally back to normal. She is obsessed with her memories of adventures in the land of Oz to the point where she can't sleep at night. Like you see Piper Laurie come into the room and it's like, Dorothy, you know, you got to go to sleep, but she's, you know, she's looking at the stars because she's thinking about monsters and thinking about trees that trees that attack. Well, this is what they get for living out in the middle of nowhere. The stars are so bright out there. They basically keep you up at night. It's true. I can report from brief experiences. If you go to a place with truly dark skies uh, and and you look up at the stars at night, it is a borderline hallucinatory experience. Yeah. But okay. Uh, Aunt Em and Uncle Henry are troubled by what's happened to Dorothy. They think she is suffering from persistent delusions because of her belief that Oz is real. So Aunt Em gets the idea that they've got to send her to a doctor in town who has a machine that can cure her brain with electricity. Uh, so there are a few things that are established in this early section on the farm. We we see, you know, that that Aunt Em and Uncle Henry are 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 loving parents. You know, they they care about Dorothy and they're trying to do good, but also that they're they're disturbed by her seeming to believe that Oz is a real place and she actually went there. And you see them trying to discourage these uh, apparent delusions and. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Dorothy's just thinking about Oz all the time. Like she finds a key on the farm and she's like, see, this key is from Oz because it's got like a, the handle on it is round, like an O and then it's got a slash through the middle of it. That sort of makes like a, the crossbar on a Z. So yeah, this is obviously an <laughs> artifact from Oz. 
And then I think it literally is later. <laughs> um, but we also, we meet a chicken who can't talk, but this chicken who cannot talk is Dorothy's friend. Uh, and the chicken is threatened by Aunt M because Aunt M's like, hey, if you don't lay an egg soon, I'm going to turn you into soup. Yep, yep. This is Belina. Uh, Belina is going to be a major character. Belina is not just there for comic relief. Now, shortly into the movie, Dorothy is taken by Aunt M to town, uh, and Toto tries to follow them. They have a very cute dog to play Toto, but Toto is not does not accompany Dorothy on her adventures in this movie. Toto stays behind, and so she's taken to the uh, to the uh, to town to go to the offices of Doctor J B Worley, played by Nicole Williamson. And again, this is going to be for the electrical cure. Now, as I said earlier, Nicole Williamson and Jean Marsh are both fabulous in their roles because, like in the original Wizard of Oz, they play these characters on both sides of, of the, the the fantasy divide. Right? They have real mundane characters and fantasy counterparts in Oz. Nicole Williamson's Earth character, Dr. Worley, is, I think, wonderfully realized as as the kind of man who presents a soft friendly, reassuring exterior while preparing the machinery that will steal your soul. Yeah, this is this is a wonderful performance. And you don't you don't see a, a lot of him here. We're not in Kansas for too long. Uh but yeah, yeah, he seems he is a he's he doesn't come off as a suspicious adult. He seems like a trusting adult who is in who's rightfully in a position of authority and is going to help you. Like there's a part where he's showing Dorothy, he says, Look, this machine has a face. Here are its eyes, and here is its nose. Uh and of course the machine is the machine they're going to use to administer uh, electroconvulsive therapy to Dorothy. Now, a brief note on psychiatry in this film. I would say this movie depicts psychiatry in general and electroconvulsive therapy in particular as cruel and evil, which I would say I have twofold thoughts about. Number one, it really works in the context of the plot. Uh, But of course, if you're going to be literal about it, I think this is very misguided. Like, I think if you get your ideas about ECT from the movies, especially like, I don't know, movies made in the 70s and 80s, uh, such as scenes from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and stuff. You would basically think that it is like a pseudoscientific involuntary torture mechanism used to inflict pain and terror. Uh, but I, I think actually, uh, you know, a lot of psychiatrists think that there's very good evidence that it's helpful and that you'll meet people who have experienced severe major depression that did not respond to other treatments. And they would say ECT made a major positive difference in their lives. Uh, though, obviously, if it were actually administered in the way it is depicted in this movie, which is like an unexplained non-consensual punishment inflicted on children for the crime of having an imagination, that would be pretty awful. So while you should obviously not get your real real world ideas about ECT from from the Oz universe, it does make a really great plot device, a scary plot device within the fantasy context of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, Dorothy is left at this clinic to uh, to be uh, subjected to the electrical cure for her brain. And there's this great scene where, you know, Dorothy's kind of uh, thinking about other things while you hear the doctor talking to Aunt Em in the background saying, you know, the mind is simply a machine. Sometimes the machine has too much electricity in it. <laughs> Uh, and and you get uh, a similar uh, foreboding elements from other things at the clinic. So Jean Marsh plays a, a what would you call her? She's like an assistant, sort of a warden at this clinic, and she's wearing a dress that looks like it might as well be Darth Vader's suit. Yeah, it is like such a gothy number. I don't know how else to describe it. It's just 
uh, like multiple shades of black and uh, and has all of these like crenulations and sort of fabric spikes on it. It's like if you, you combine like a little house on the prairie dress and the road warrior. Yeah. Uh, but also here at the clinic, Dorothy meets a mysterious blonde girl who like appears in her room and warns her about Dr. Worley's machines. I think, is this the scene where they're like hearing people screaming and she says like, those are the people who have been subjected to the machine. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, this is probably the darkest moment in the film. I thought for me anyway, like yeah. this is the, this is the moment where I was sitting there watching it, you know, next to my son and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is maybe a little too dark. But he didn't seem to mind, and, and you're, you're through it pretty quickly. And there's a scene where they're, like, taking Dorothy to, to be hooked up to the, the electrical machine, the one that had eyes and a nose and a mouth, and they're hooking the electrodes up to her head. And just when they're getting ready to send the charge, the there is a storm, and lightning strikes, and power is lost. And uh, Dorothy actually escapes during this lightning storm, along with that strange blonde girl who she keeps seeing in the mirror. Uh, and they, they get swept up in a flood. Uh, they're being chased by Jean Marsh in that, in that crazy black dress. And they end up floating away down a torrent in a chicken coop. By the way, uh, I couldn't help but be reminded of the movie Brazil, which I guess came out the same year, uh, 1985. Hmm. But that film has a scene where an individual's strapped to a contraption and in that case is about to be tortured when mm-hmm. something miraculous happens that seems to save him. And then at the end of the film, well, depending on the cut, you find out that this was all just uh, uh, what an occurrence at, what is it, Owl Creek Bridge situation where uh, oh. everything was happening in his head and he really died on the interrogation table. So I'm, I'm happy to say that that is not the case in Return to Oz. There's not a scene later where you realize, oh, this was all just electricity going through Dorothy's brain. Right. No, no, no. There is like a waking up later scene, but it's not that. Yeah. <laughs> she did really go out and get in the mud. And into the river, and then seemingly into the ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, and it's a good thing she did run out uh, into the the floodwaters because apparently, if she had remained behind at the clinic, she maybe she may have been incinerated. Yes. <laughs> uh, but so from here, we're going to go to Oz. We got it. We got to talk Oz. Uh, first thing is she wakes up in that chicken coop being wrecked in what's called the deadly desert, which is a a plot device that that I love. Uh, Mm -hmm. The idea of the deadly desert is if you touch the sand, you turn to sand and it's very simple, but it's great. Mm -hmm. We see a wheeler turn to sand at some point and, and it's brutal. Yeah. That was one of my son's favorite moments. Uh, And in part, because we hated the wheelers, like we could tell the wheelers were bad news. So any bad things that happened to the wheelers are somewhat justified. But as soon as Dorothy wakes up in the deadly desert, her chicken friend, Belina, is there with her. And Belina can talk now. Remember by the mechanism Mm -hmm. we discussed earlier. You know, you're an animal, you're an Oz, now you're a talking animal. And it turns out all along, if Belina could talk, we would have noticed that she has like a sassy old prairie grandma-tude. Yeah, yeah. It's full of of fun one-liners as well. Uh, And occasionally has information and and advice. So they're going around, they're checking out Oz. They're like, what's up in Oz? And uh-oh, everything is wrecked. Nothing's good anymore. The Yellow Brick mm-hmm. Road is all torn up. Uh, Munchkin Village is gone, I think. Emerald City is in ruins. It, we see it in the distance, and it looks like it has been shelled. Yeah. And we gather 
that uh, when Dorothy last left, the Scarecrow had been crowned King of Oz in the Emerald City. And I think there's an understanding that Scarecrow was going to be a good and just ruler. Scarecrow is kind. Scarecrow is thoughtful. You know, he, he wouldn't do he wouldn't be a bad king. But in the meantime, something has gone terribly wrong. And I, I was immediately tempted to think how different the story would be if it had been like George R.R. R. Martin's Return to Oz, <laughs> where the friendly scarecrow has a heel turn as soon as Dorothy leaves. He's corrupted by power. He immediately institutes, you know, draconian repression, purges of his perceived enemies. He sends Tin Man to prison. Uh, he's got dungeons <laughs> in the Emerald City. That would have been a way to go. But no, it's not that the scarecrow had a heel turn. Instead, what happened is that the scarecrow has been deposed and someone else has taken over someone bad yeah but i don't know wouldn't that have been a good twist what if the scarecrow was the villain of the movie yeah yeah it would have been it would have been nice and twisty it seems like the kind of thing they would do today if they were to make return to oz though this film does have some neat twists concerning what exactly happened so anyway, Dorothy and Belina investigate. Everywhere there are statues of human forms, and in the ruins of the Emerald City, they find a creepy uh, graffito on a wall that says, Beware the Wheelers. Yes, written in red. Um, I don't think it's written in blood, but, but who can say for certain? It looks like it's written in red colored pencil. Yeah, or they didn't have a lot of blood. It's not drippy blood, but it's like... We, you know, we're not, not going to really just uh, layer it on. We only have so much blood to work with here. I'm just saying it could be blood. It could be blood. I think blood is a scarce resource in Oz now because <laughs> most human bodies have been turned into stone from what we can see. True. And in the ruins of the city, Dorothy and Belina get attacked by these horrible creatures called wheelers. We've already talked about they got wheels instead of hands and feet. Uh, and uh, Dorothy uses her special key. I think this is the Oz key that she found on the farm in Kansas. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. He uses that to open a door inside a secret room there. She finds this bulbous mechanical man. And this is one of our heroes. TikTok. I loved TikTok. He is like a wind up copper Ronin. He is a mechanical warrior whose master has been deposed. And now he's in the service of Dorothy. Great design. Great effects with this, uh, this being the, um, uh, the, the, like a, a lot of it is puppetry, but also it's clearly a person in a suit mm -hmm. and it's, they're able to pull off this wonderful gait, this wonderful walking style of, of, of TikTok. It's, 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 a, it's absolutely wonderful. He was one of my favorite parts of the whole film. He's sort of a little bit Teddy Roosevelt-ish, but other yeah. elements too, like he's blustery and headstrong and has a big walrus mustache, a metal one, of course. Uh, but I thought a really interesting recurring theme is that we are frequently reminded throughout the movie that TikTok is not alive. Like when Dorothy first finds him, there are instructions on his back for how to wind him up and make him work. But, uh, and, and one of the things the instruction says is like the, you know, the TikTok, the mechanical man does everything but live. Yes. But what does that mean? So TikTok clearly has a mind. He has a personality and he even has preferences and the ability to take offense. Like there's a scene later when Jack Pumpkinhead suggests throwing TikTok out of the Gump aircraft because he's the heaviest of them. And mm -hmm. TikTok clearly takes a front. Like he is annoyed by this suggestion. Yes. And yet uh, there are other times where TikTok seems to reference the fact that he is not alive as a reason for not being concerned about something. It's like, you know, I, I don't really worry about getting turned into an inanimate object because I'm not alive anyway. Well, in Oz, being a, a non-living entity, 
I, th- I think you have a lot of company. It's not one of these stories where, oh, I am the lonely being that is a machine and not a human but has feelings. So in Oz, everywhere you look, there's some sort of reanimated form. There's some, so there are machine people all over the place of just different varieties. I think Return to Oz explores some of the same thematic territory as Terminator 2. Uh, can <laughs> this machine be a good parent? Does this machine know, does it understand why we cry, even if it's something it can never do? Yeah. So anyway, I thought that might, this is like a kind of a, a thoughtful movie for kids. It plants some interesting philosophical ideas in their mind about what does it mean to be alive. Uh, but also, I like the uh, the wind up and wind down dynamic with TikTok. So TikTok has uh, winding keys for three different things, thought, speech, and action. And at various times throughout the movie, one of the three, but not the other two will wind down, including a very funny scene where they're trying, where all the good characters are trying to like work on a project together, but Mm -hmm. TikTok's thought runs down while his speech and action are still active. Yeah. I love this as well. The the three um, wind up, wind down dynamics, because on, on one level, I think it's, it's a good way to get kids potentially thinking about like what it, what, what the human experience is, you know, like mm-hmm. thinking of our, of our own mental faculty, faculties, not as a single entity, but this thing that sort of emerges out of, um, out of, uh, out of, out of, out of different uh, things and different stimuli and mm-hmm. different pro- processes. So uh, it's, it's an interesting way to look at a, a in this case, a fantastic being, but also to sort of turn that uh, reflection back on yourself at times. But so we said the, the TikTok, he's a soldier, right? He's a warrior for the scarecrow. Uh, and he's been left behind by the scarecrow, uh, I think to wait for Dorothy. So here's Dorothy and, and now they're, they're teaming up. So right from the outset, uh, TikTok is ready to beat up some wheelers. He like walks oh, out. Yes. Oh, he, he, there's a, there's a, <laughs> There's a fight scene that you could regard as underwhelming because TikTok is just basically spinning around in a circle, whacking wheelers. Uh, but it, I don't. Something about it is really good. Yeah, it's it's an, it's intensely satisfying. In part because the wheelers have established themselves as a total menace, and their acting is over the top. Here comes TikTok. He absolutely wails on them, and then he captures the lead wheeler, um, who is again the most animated and annoying of the wheelers, and begins to roughly interrogate him. And we were just cheering for TikTok during this scene. We're like, yeah, get him, TikTok. It's great. And uh, of course, under under torture, essentially, no, under, you know, threat, uh, the lead wheeler reveals that the scarecrow has been overthrown and taken prisoner by the Gnome King. And to learn more about what's going on, they have to go and visit the castle of Princess Mombi. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. 
Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
So that's what happens next. The whole section in Mombi's castle in the middle of the movie is just awesome. Uh, where do you want to start here? So Mombi's palace is like, in many ways, it's made of mirrors, or at least sort of the throne room is, which is uh, very creepy, especially in scenes where like Dorothy's trying to find a door or figure out what to do. Yeah, her whole palace is just, oh my goodness, the sets are amazing. The, even sets, even parts of the palace that you don't really spend much time in just look incredible. Like they walk through a bedroom and you, nothing ever happens with the bedroom, but you see it in the background is just just stupendous. It's like a this weird uh, evil princess cathedral. And then you venture into this hall of heads. This is where Mombi stores these various stolen uh, female heads that she has, stores them alive, and will use them. Uh, uh, we've mentioned this on the show before because somebody wrote in uh, on Listener Mail about this, how curious it is that Mombi is always the same Mombi, but Mombi takes off her original head and puts on these other heads. And while she has these other heads on, she again is still Mombi, but it also is stated in the film where it's it's sort of uh, suggested in the film or it's hypothesized by one of the characters that if she does something with one head on and she switches to another head, she might not remember something she did previously, which just sends my head reeling trying to figure out how all of that works. Yeah, her personality always seems to be the same, but I think it's Jack Pumpkinhead says that, uh, because Dorothy's about to meet him, uh, he says that Mombi uh, locked him up in the tower, but then forgot he was in there because she switched heads and that memory was in a different head. And when we first meet her, it's not Jean Marsh's head. So we don't, you know, our guard is down. We're not seeing like, oh, that's the scary lady. Remember her from the clinic? It's just some other lady. She looks nice. And, you know, she's sitting there playing a harp. And then she and Dorothy start talking. But then she's like, uh, Dorothy, uh, I'm going to need to cut your head off and keep it in my uh, keep it in my collection. But you're not old enough yet. So I got to lock you in a tower for a few years. Then your head will get bigger and then I'll cut it off and then I'll keep it. Yeah, she she realizes this is an investment. We're going to wait for you to mature a bit. We we she doesn't want to wear little girl Feruzabalk head. She wants to wear the craft Feruzabalk head, and she's right. going to have to wait a few years for that to happen. So off to the, uh, the 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 dungeon chamber with you, up to the, uh, the the locked room, and so she's thrown in there with Jack Pumpkinhead, uh, who she meets. Uh, but also there are all these pieces that will eventually become the gump because at this point we're dealing with an escape plan. Uh, they, they find out about this. What is it? The, the, is it the, the powder, powder of animation or the powder of life? Powder of life. Yeah. It's a magical powder that Mombi has that she sprinkles over inanimate objects to wake them up. Um, and this is originally, I think where Jack Pumpkinhead comes from that he's like a, mm-hmm. he's made of sticks and a pumpkin though. Wait, I think he was originally a real boy. Maybe I'm. I'm not sure. He he asks if he, if he can call Dorothy mom, and she allows it, which is a little creepy, but it's also kind of sweet at the same yeah. time. I don't know. Yeah, but at any rate, they realize we got to get out of here. Well, we could fly out of here if only we had a winged mount. Mm-hmm. Well, we could make one out of this moose's head or Gump's head on the wall and this couch, and we could use these pieces of this this fern to make wings, and this will somehow work, but we need that powder in order to bring all of this to life and fly out the window. 
Where's the powder? Well, we find out it's stored with Mombi's original head. So Dorothy is going to have to sneak out and make her way through that museum of heads and try and find the original head and steal the powder from that head locker. It's a heist at the head repository. Yeah, and this is an amazing sequence and also just a wonderfully magical, dark fantasy sequence because, you know, it's, it's the scene where Dorothy's creeping down the hallway. All of these silent heads are in the are in their chambers. And then when she gets there, uh, she opens it up. There's Jean Marsh's head in there, the original Mombi head. And, of course, it's not going to go without, a, without at least a single hiccup because she ends up waking up the Mombi head. All of the heads wake up. All of the heads are screaming. Yeah. And then she takes off with the powder. Meanwhile, Mombi's body is waking up from the bed. Oh, we do see something with the bedroom. Uh, and, uh, that's right. But it's like walking around like a zombie with no head coming mm-hmm. after. It's a wonderful nightmare. So with the Gump aircraft they've put together, again, it's like a, a moose type thing, a Gump head that's mounted. And then it goes with some couches and wings made out of plant leaves. Uh, like I think palm leaves or something. Uh, they they make this aircraft and they fly out to escape and they're going to fly to the gnome King's mountain though. It's very funny because the gump is like, I don't know how to fly. I've just a head. I've never, I never flew in life. So I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. The gump, the gump is wonderful and has lots of little snide comments about how he liked it better when he was just a head. Uh, now, yeah. This current life is a little more challenging than he likes a little more moving around. So they fly over the, uh, the deadly desert to get to the gnome King's mountain. He lives in a mountain and Ooh, the gnome King, when they get there, uh, I, I feel like here, maybe we should start to describe in a little more, uh, in lighter detail. Uh, but warning, if you are going to watch the movie, you don't want anything about the ending at all spoiled. Maybe, maybe you can tune out here until you've seen it. Cause we will discuss a few things, but, uh, the gnome King is so cool. He is some kind of humanoid elemental being of mineral origin. He's a greedy, but clever sorcerer of rocks. Yeah. And the claymation here is just wicked. So throughout the movie, we've seen this like rock face doing reports of what's happening to the gnome King. Uh, and that's all stop motion animation. That's very good. Uh, but here we start seeing claymation and, and general stop motion of uh, the King himself and the sorcery that he casts. Like one of my favorite animations is that there's a, that like Dorothy and her friends are in a cave with the gnome King. And occasionally the gnome King will open a portal to go into a, into a palace with these halls and the way the portal opens is the rock turns into many hands that start pulling the like pulling a hole open in the rock itself yeah all of these effects all of the effects they use to bring the gnome king to life are amazing and most of them are these kind of stop motion effects though as, as we'll discuss something is happening that makes the gnome king increasingly more human in form uh, uh, and uh, so we eventually get uh, uh, Williamson himself there as the Gnome King, but covered under a lot of like rock makeup and uh, like a rocky beard and so forth. Right. So the Gnome King has Dorothy and her friends play a guessing game where he says, oh, yes, I have the Scarecrow uh, captive. And I've turned him into an inanimate object, into an ornament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you can uh, walk around my palace and guess which ornament is the Scarecrow then I'll let him go. But if you guess wrong three times in a row, I'm going to turn you into an ornament. Actually, he doesn't tell them that at the beginning. It it happens first to, uh, I think the gump. And then they're like, wait, you didn't say that was going to happen. And he's like, Oh, you didn't ask. Yeah. He's, uh, 
He's, he's adding a lot of rules after the fact, though at the same time, our heroes are not really asking for a full breakdown of the terms ahead of time either. Yeah. So you get the sense that he is made of rock, but he sort of wants to become a human for some reason. And the more humans he absorbs and turns into inanimate objects or not necessarily humans living things he absorbs and turns into inanimate objects the more he becomes a fleshly creature instead of a rock yeah and it's not explained in the film why this is and and i kind of like that i like i mean anytime there's sort of grandiose evil magic going on in something it's even more creepy if there's stuff going on that you don't fully understand like we don't know why he wants this transformation to occur or why it is occurring but it is uh, at least a byproduct of the evil that he's doing oh we should say the entire time they're with the gnome king and playing this guessing game the Belina, the chicken, is hiding inside of Jack Pumpkinhead's pumpkin head. He's like, right. She's in the jack o' lantern. Oh, uh, so this is another important thing. Now that we've mentioned the chicken, it has been established a few different times that the chicken is noteworthy in mm-hmm. Oz, and yeah. that and that the Gnome King will want to know about this chicken. And and it's even implied that the chicken is really the most important member of this party. He is of the most interest to the Gnome King. And Mombi realizes this, and Mombi is rushing to the Gnome King's castle, I guess to warn him of the chicken. And she does so, oh God, I love this sequence. She does so by getting all of her wheelers together and lashing them to a chariot and then climbing aboard the chariot and whipping them to get them to ride at top speed and take her to the Gnome King's castle. It is tremendous. They're traveling through some kind of underground tunnel that cuts underneath the deadly desert, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it is, uh, it's wonderful and eyebrow-raising. Uh, it's, it's, it's tremendous. And she does get there, but I don't think she's able to really uh, to warn him sufficiently, at least not enough to to save him in the end. Uh, I don't remember what she says, but like when she gets there, he's very haughty. He's like, bow, bow lower. Yeah. And then he locks her in a cage. Yeah, I believe. So, yeah, ultimately, it doesn't really make a huge difference that she made it there at all. But the Gnome King here is becoming more and more humanoid in appearance, and uh, more and more of Dorothy's uh, friends are being turned into unknown ornaments in the room. And I think this is, is this also where we find out how the Gnome King was able to carry out this, um, this attack on the Emerald City? Is this when he reveals his feet? Oh, no, explain that. Well, there's, he reveals that oh, it's, it's mentioned earlier in the film that, you know, that I think uh, it's Anne M asking, well, Dorothy, if all this Oz stuff is real, then where are these uh, ruby slippers that you speak of that gave you this power? And she's yes. like, well, they fell off when I was returning to Earth. And they're like, okay, well, see, there's no proof. Well, the Gnome King reveals that he is wearing the ruby slippers, that they basically fell into his lap, and he used the power of the ruby slippers to then overthrow the Scarecrow King. And so we see this, the, see, uh, um, the Gnome King wearing the, the, the shiny ruby slippers there. Great twist. And I think Dorothy tries to go for them, but he's like, no, no, and he tucks them back under. Yep. <laughs> um, and uh, in the end... How, how are they going to defeat the Gnome King? I mean, the Gnome King is so powerful. What what kind of power do they have that could stand up against a, a creature of such uh, such immense potency? Well, well, for starters, Dorothy is able to retrieve some of her friends from ornament transformation. But 
but this just makes the Gnome King all the more enraged. He turns into this gigantic stone monster, and he has decided he is going to eat them. He start he like picks up the gump and like eats the gump's body, uh, and like the head falls off, and then he goes to eat uh, Jack Pumpkinhead instead uh, as well. And but Belina, the chicken, is in Jack Pumpkinhead's head, and. It is finally time for Belina to lay her egg. She lays the egg inside Jack Pumpkinhead's head. It rolls out of the pumpkin and goes down the Gnome King's throat. And then, uh-oh, uh, the Gnome King realizes that something has gone terribly wrong. Because the big twist is that eggs are poison to the Gnome King. Right. We, we didn't know this until it is finally revealed. We knew that... We, we kind of got the sense that the, the chicken was a threat, but we didn't know why the chicken was a threat to the Gnome King's rule. Now it is revealed the egg is, um, uh, is, is, is has terrible magic in it. The ter- uh, it does terrible things to the Gnome King's power, which uh, I guess is not, I, I don't know. I, I didn't do a lot of deep thinking about this, but eggs do factor into various magical um, rituals and so forth. There is something about the egg that is often seen as sacred, and Mm -hmm. somehow the egg is able to undo everything that the Gnome King is doing. Yeah, the egg symbolizes uh, potential, symbolizes transformation. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It has a lot of uh, symbolic loading, so that makes sense. Uh, But of course, so yeah, Gnome King is defeated, and then uh, Scarecrow, who has been restored from, I think he had been turned into like just a big green gem. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he's back to, he's back into his form. Dorothy's able to restore everybody who got turned into an ornament. And then they all go back to the Emerald city, uh, where the scarecrow's back on the throne. Everybody's happy again. Mombi is in a cage. And then they're like, uh, they're like, oh, well, you know, she doesn't have powers anymore. So she'll be all right. I noticed the wheelers are also just hanging around at this point in the movie. And I was yeah. thinking, well, like, okay, we're sorry. In a cage. <laughs> The wheelers just yeah they just get by with a sorry like they seem to be uh, the scourge of the uh, of the realm there for a while uh, but you know, everything's forgiven everybody's happy again. How many denizens of Oz did they eat or whatever they do? Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also we get another twist, which is that the blonde girl that Dorothy had seen several times already is. Uh, her name is Ozma, and what is her role? She's like the rightful princess of Oz or something. Yeah, she's like the um yeah, she's like she's the good she's the good witch of this movie basically and she's mm-hmm. been sort of in the background helping things move along the whole time, but then also there's this idea that like she is also connected to Dorothy. She's going to be she is like the way that Dorothy remains in Oz and yeah. in the Earth realm at the same time. She is Dorothy's counterpart. So Dorothy can be on both sides of the mirror. Dorothy can go back to Kansas and be home, but also stay in Oz in the form of this other girl and and be be the princess there. And Ozma's like, basically like, hey, you can still be in Oz all the time in your head. Just don't tell Aunt Em about it. Just be quiet yeah. about it. And right. Everything's fine. Uh, and then we get a very sweet reunion back in Kansas where Toto finds Dorothy washed up on a washed up on a grimy uh, river shore. And and then mm-hmm. there's Uncle Henry and they all get back together again. And it's very sweet. Yep, yep. Though we do see um Mombi's earthly counterpart this would be uh, nurse wilson we see her mm. being taken away in the back of um, a carriage that also kind of looks like a cage yeah and then 
And then it's revealed that uh, Dr. Worley uh, died uh, in a fire because he, the, basically the, the clinic uh, the facilities there had been struck by lightning, and he went back in to save his machine and died. He was, he was too devoted to his machines, and it killed him. Yeah. So very, very Frank Herbert kind of moment there where, oh, yes, uh, this character died off screen. So Return to Oz, deeply strange, fantastically imaginative, totally wonderful. Uh, one of my favorite new fantasy movies or kids movies. Uh, yeah, it's just a blast. I, I richly enjoyed it. I mean, obviously, parents will have to make their own decisions about films like this. I I was researching it a little bit before we watched it. I went to the IMDb uh, parental guidance area where the users submit stuff about films. And they did have the chicken lays an egg in the, the Gnome King's head as an example of violence in the picture. I, <laughs> I didn't really think of it as violence per se. Um, but uh, it is oh, certainly it, weird. It is an act of inadvertent poisoning. So I guess yeah. it would be like a scene where if a character accidentally put arsenic in somebody else's sandwich. Yeah, I guess. But at any rate, yes, Return to Oz. I absolutely loved it. I think it's a lot of fun. And I'd love to hear from folks out there, though, because like, like we've been saying, Joe and I only just watched this movie in full uh, as adults. We'd love to hear from folks who saw it back in the day. What was it like seeing Return to Oz on the big screen in, in 1985 or seeing it on VHS uh, once it was available on home video? How did other people in your life presented or respond to it. Did you hear people saying, well, this is not what Oz is all about. What is this gum business? It's, it's supposed to be the cowardly lion. Did you have to put up with all that? Was it effective? Uh, all of this is fair, uh, fair play. I'd love to hear from everyone. So that's it for this edition of Weird House Cinema. Just a reminder, Weird House Cinema publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We are primarily a science podcast, but on Fridays we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. I blog about these episodes at samutamusic.com. And if you use letterboxd.com, that's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com, you'll find us on there. Our username is Weird House, and we keep a Weird House Cinema episode list going there where you can see all the films that we've covered thus far. Uh, as of this episode, it is 82 films that we've covered. And I'll often go ahead and add the next film on the list so you can sort of look ahead and see what we're talking about next. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. There is a 
and in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.